Today's episode of The Thriller Zone with David Temple is sponsored by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Thriller Zone. I'm your host, David Temple. Before we start, I have to say I'm one of the luckiest guys in the world. I mean, besides having a lovely and brilliant wife, an adorable dog, and a great life in Southern California, I get to hang out and talk with some of the most talented thriller writers in the world today. I mean, come on, how cool is that? I'm really quite grateful. And today is no different, because on today's episode, I get to sit down with Suzanne Chazen. Suzanne's a talented writer of not one, but two series— She's twice been the recipient of the Washington Irving Book Award for Fiction, and her work has appeared in numerous magazines and newspapers. But let me stop babbling and just get right to it. Please welcome Suzanne Chazen to The Thriller Zone. Well, it's great to meet you. And um, if everything is good, I'm I'm glad to hear that because I'm not technologically competent. So that's already a good sign. We're off to a good start. Yes. (laughs) Well, Suzanne, I have to say that uh, even though you may not, as you just said, uh, uh, are particularly technologically savvy, you sure have a way with words. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's so nice to be here, David. You reached out to me, and for some reason, I was instantly drawn to you. Something about The Fragile Edge, which we're going to get to here shortly, attracted my attention. And I I want to come back later and say, what's the uh, inspiration for this cover? Because it's really quite unique. But we'll get to that. Isn't it? Yeah. I'm very happy with it. Super, super engaging. And you have, so we're going to talk about two separate series today, which I'm I'm fascinated by both. We're going to spend most of the time on the Fragile Edge uh, and Jimmy Vega, but two other series, one other series starring a um, scrappy, I like the word scrappy female fire investigator for the uh, New York City Fire Department and the other uh, cop in upstate New York. So we're, we're going to get to Jimmy Vega. But tell me about this scrappy female uh, fire investigator, because unless I'm greatly mistaken, I don't recall ever reading a character like this, and that is this particular uh, job. So yeah. who, who is she and what inspired you? Well, um, to give you some background, my husband it was, he's now retired, um, worked for the FDNY for 30 years. He was an FDNY fire chief, New York City Fire Department. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he was not ever a marshal, but he was on the job. So as a firefighter's wife, I absorbed the culture. And it is a very... Um, insular culture with its own traditions, um, and you you either know it or you don't. Um, and so I began to really absorb this culture. And originally, as a writer, I thought, well, this is something I'd really like to write about. But as a woman, I felt that I, while I certainly can, as you can see, I can write a male character, I just felt it was so much more interesting from the viewpoint of a woman. And at the time, um, women had just started coming on to the job in the New York City Fire Department. So I interviewed some of the women, including a lieutenant uh, who was wonderful. And they kind of inspired me. But I also realized that firefighters don't investigate fires. Fire marshals investigate fires. They're kind of the police arm of the fire department. Oh, all so, right. So the, now I may, I, I'm not speaking for every department. It's mm-hmm. entirely possible in other places, like you might have a police department that has an arson 
squad that investigates it. So it, it's not to say every fire department does as many fire departments. They just handle fires. And then the police have an arson department. But in the New York City Fire Department, there are fire marshals and they investigate fires and they have police powers. So I thought to myself, well, if I'm going to write a mystery. I've got to write a mystery with a cop. And the cop then has to be a fire marshal. So that's really what happened. But I was really loved writing about fire. I mean, fire is fascinating because fire has no soul. You know, normally when you're dealing with, uh, a, you know, a, a thriller, you're dealing with an evil enemy who is desirous of doing something, even inadvertently. I mean, maybe they, maybe they have other goals, but in the process of their goals, they're killing people. Fire doesn't care if you're good or bad. Fire doesn't care what happens. Fire is just this fire and it consumes everything. So I loved writing about it. Wow, it's fascinating. My mind goes back to uh, one of the first and only movies that I think about fire, and that's Backdraft. Oh, sure. And I remember how powerful it was, and that was the first time I had gotten a real sense that fire has a mind of its own, and as you said, in no respect of persons, it's going to go through, do its damaging, and move on. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's it's. I also love the science, the G with science of fire. I mean, one of the things I felt fun. They enjoyed doing in those books was bringing the science of fire forward. So like I could talk about what a backdraft is because you can actually replicate a backdraft. You know, they do that in fire training and things like that. Um, you can replicate much of what happens in fire. That's how investigation works. They figure out what would have happened. So it's very science oriented. So it's this wonderful evil thing, but it, it absolutely works under scientific parameters. So I really enjoyed that. And by the way, firefighters always tell you backdraft is a hoot. Because in backdraft, you can see everything that's going on, which, of course, in a fire, you can't see anything. It's, it's entirely black. <laughs> Good point. Well, it is Hollywood after all, right? It's Hollywood. <laughs> Am I pronouncing the name right? Georgia Skihan or Skihan? Skihan. Skihan. It's an unusual name. It actually was, I was going to go with Sheehan, but I really wanted a unique name. And I actually, there was a firefighter working at the time. I didn't even know him well. It was working my husband's company and he had the last name Skihan and I thought that's unique and I I wanted a first name that could be done into a man's name because she was named after her father who died in the line of duty and I wanted a last name that was unique but also had that nice Irish New York City firefighter sound to it well mission accomplished Georgia Skihan whenever I hear I'm from the south so whenever I hear Georgia uh, I always have to say it but Georgia Georgia. <laughs> so so Georgia appears in let's see the fourth angel flashover and fireplay now la logical question here is it going to be a fourth in that series um right now no the publishing business isn't that friendly to old series but i will have i do have good news um it is going to be in audio which is not all these years um not we don't know exactly soon it's coming from tantor soon i haven't i've heard the contracts are coming so um, so that that's a big thrill to me because so many readers really like books now in audio. And Georgia always, in my opinion, loan, learned itself very well to audio. So right now, I'm hoping that maybe we'll develop an interest from the audio market and that might lead to more Georgia books. I won't bore you with statistics because I'm sure you're aware of most of them. But uh, it is interesting to know that audiobooks is not only becoming more and more popular with listeners, but it is projected to continue its meteoric rise. I mean, 
I think it started probably with the COVID movement, um, and it has just grown since then. We're all doing double duty and everything that we do on a daily yeah. basis, and it's just become kind of second nature. I want to go back to something because this series, this show is for thriller writers and readers, and the writer part, what, what uh, got my attention was you said that publishers aren't hip, you didn't use that word, to old series. Do you mean that by this is a really old series or do you mean they... Well, no, I mean that I mean that it, it, the economics of publishing, as I'm sure you know, because you're also a fellow author, um, the economics of publishing are very difficult now. And I think when a series existed, you know, I, I, I had the bad misfortune in both of my series of kind of happening to write something before the events that basically made it popular. But once the events made it popular, it also made the series like a little bit cringy for people to read about the fiction of it. So so what happened is I started the, the, the series and I started working on it. It took me about five years to write the first book. And I started long before 9-11. And my first book came out right before 9-11. My second book was wrapped up by that point. And my third book was under contract. It became more difficult right after, you know, the, the third book came out originally in 2003. So they're older books, but they're still very, very, very popular now because they can be downloaded all the time and, and, and people buy them secondhand and, and, and downloads. But, um, but the long and the short was right after, F, you know, the, the, you know, 9-11 happened, it seemed almost like I had capitalized on something, which I had not. I was writing about what I knew to be my own you know, family experience to take it into a mystery. So there was a discomfort. And by the time there wasn't, which there isn't now, the series is old and it doesn't matter what you did. They, you know, I mean, at this point, I'd have to write an entirely new series. Copy that. Uh, if I may, it, you just triggered something in my mind. This is interesting. I was, I started a book, uh, a completely new series, not Pat Norelli. About uh, two years ago when um, a certain orange gentleman was in office and it had to do (laughs) with I was basing the character on him. And a lot of the things that I was writing, I was in I was trying to create the darkest element of that world that I could. And as I was writing, so many of things started to happen. And to your point, I was like. I feel kind of weird about this because by the time I finish it, you just made the greatest point. By the time I finish it, it will feel as though, oh, somebody just dictated off of what was happening and capitalized on it. And so I've put it aside. But boy, it's hard because I when I wrote the fourth book in the Jimmy Vegas series, I actually um, in the in the fourth angel series, the developer in the first book is the orange one because in New York we've known him and had the pleasure of him much longer than you have. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I had him as a developer. He was my Sloan Michaels um, uh, character. And then when I, when, when he was first, very, very first, they were saying, there's no way he'll ever run for president. You know, uh, I decided to make him my county executive in my fourth book and to, to kind of do a what if scenario. By the time the book was published, of course, everything had already happened. And again, I felt like, oh, no, you know, this is not what I wanted to do. And I have this, this uncomfortable habit of calling the future, but not meaning to. <laughs> so. <laughs> oh, that's, that's hilarious. 
So speaking of Jimmy Vega, let's get to him because uh, he's an interesting character. This is the second series, and you, uh, I'm reading where he's being called a flawed but humane cop navigating the world of the undocumented in upstate New York. And when I originally read that description, I wasn't sure what you meant. I'm like, okay, a humane cop? And until I dug in, and what I really enjoyed and appreciated was his warmth and his humanity, which is where I suppose the word humane came into. But such a nice departure from uh, your standard detective cop kind of a character where they're almost always, and I'm guilty of that too, almost always broken and or tortured and or etc. But Jimmy's not quite like that. Let's talk about him. No, no. And and I want to go back to something. Um, Early in Lee Child's career, he and I knew each other pretty well. And I remember that one of the things he first said when he was writing his Jack Reacher character, he said that he was tired of reading about cops who were, you know, washed out drunks and they were divorced and they were broken. And that was precisely what he didn't want to do with Jack Reacher. Jack Reacher wasn't broken. Whatever he was, he liked the way he was, you know. And um, with Jimmy, I don't know if he likes the way he is, but I also kind of felt like well, Jimmy is divorced, but I felt that I was really going for a different kind of guy. I, I felt that he was going to have to make a lot of controversial choices in the books and people might come to it with a mindset of either being wanting a superhero cop who, you know, is like vanquishes all evil or they want someone who is just, you know, uh, emblematic of all the problems that people feel are in the police today. And I didn't want either. I wanted a, a guy. And I also wanted a guy who, like, one of the things I found in both the fire department and the police department is people think that everybody in those jobs went there. It's like from the time they were three, they put on a helmet or a badge and they said, I want to be a cop. I want to be a firefighter. But it's like any job. A lot of times people don't start out that way. They have other interests and other ideas and something either draws them or circumstances. So for me, it was very important that Jimmy was not a gun ho cop. He was basically, uh, he, wanted to be a, he wanted to be a musician. He wanted to play guitar in a rock and roll band. And then his girlfriend gets pregnant. He himself was the child of a single mother. And he thinks, I don't want that world for my child. So now he tries to do the good thing and says, okay, she wants to have the baby. We'll get married. I'll take a job that will give me steady paycheck and health insurance. We all, we all know about health insurance. Yeah. Uh, the health insurance. And, and so he kind of grows into the job. And I think what I really want to do is the exploration of what is that like? Because I think today people either tend to see a police officer in two camps, either the hero or the villain. And most of them are just people. They're doing a job and it's in many times a thankless job. And most of them are doing it as well as they can. I don't know if this makes me a sap or I'm just super sensitive. And I can't say that I very often get teary, especially in a thriller. But the and I won't I won't ruin this. But at the end of the book, there's a scene that he does something for his girlfriend. And for some reason that swept me away and made me go, wow, that's so tender about this guy's guy. You know how I'm doing. And it was I just love that. And I, I, I'm going to pull this out because I love this line. Uh, sometimes I'll, I'll highlight lines out Thank of you. books yeah. that I love. And it's at the very last page. And for some reason, I, I read it three times because it really is a poignant line. It's not going to ruin anything for anybody. Family is that string that always pulls you back to the place that you came from, even if you can't go there anymore. Yeah. <sighs> 
Love it. You know, it's it's wonderful that you pulled that out because actually, if someone said, "What is the theme of this entire series?" It's family, yeah. and it's about family that you can connect with, family that you can't connect with, and in every single one of the Jimmy Vegas, and I know this is off topic of thrillers and believe me as you know there's plenty of thriller in it but the idea is that both jim you know jimmy and the characters in the book the immigrants everybody's sort of wrestling with family issues Mm -hmm. they're wrestling with the family they can't see anymore the family they see again but they don't want to see anymore the family that they used to have the family they want to make now and and i feel like Family defines us, and I know there are, you know, the books that that family is all they're about, but I don't think that there's any reason that you can't make a book that's a thriller or a book where you turn the pages and you're very excited reading what happened and still not have those human elements. I think you can do it. Uh, I 100% agree. A thrill. Uh, someone asked me the other day, what's the difference between a, a mystery and a, and a thriller? And I'm going to hack this. I said a mystery is whodunit and a thriller is... How fast can you get it done? Uh, joke, a little bit of a joke, but having to do with turning pages. But to your point, if you don't have some kind of a heart in it somewhere, then you don't have um, contrast. And I think right. in contrast comes not only development of story, but an enormous uh, interest and depth of story. So I think you got to have it all. Thing- Well, the other thing is I was writing a series, and I think it's different if you write a standalone. I think if you write a standalone thriller, uh, and by the way, it's interesting you said that line because I used to teach a course on mysteries and thrillers, and I used to compare them this way. I'd say a mystery is who did it, and a thriller is will they do it again? Because usually in a thriller, you already know something happened. Something's already happened. The question is, can you stop them before they do it again? Um, and, and in a mystery, sometimes it's just who did it. Maybe there is no second crime, right. you know, it's just figuring out. Um, but, uh, but I think with a, with a standalone thriller, you can really make the thrills and the page turning enough. But I think in a series, you're asking a reader to invest not just in one book, but hopefully, hopefully mm-hmm. in more than one and into the character and to make them invest into the character the character has to be interesting. I mean, one of the things that comes up over and over again from my readers, and I love this, is they say, Jimmy makes mistakes. Boy, does Jimmy make mistakes. He makes a lot of mistakes, but they're all because he's a good guy and a human guy and he wants to do the right thing. And I think it's important. I think that sometimes that's missing in characters, that they always make the right decision, or if they make the wrong decisions, they're kind of like, you know, idiot. Anybody would have known that. I mean, I I feel like Jimmy makes decisions that anybody could could choose in that direction, but it turns out that sometimes they're not. It's not the right direction. Exactly. And by the way, I I wrote down the quote. I'm going to now officially give you the credit from now on. <laughs> no. So when people I just ask, wanted to tell you because it's it's people ask that all the time, and I think it's really great to have a quick handle. Suzanne, I'm going to give you the credit, and that's all I'm going to say about it. All right. All right. Thank you, David. It began with Land of Careful Shadows, which Lee Child calls highly recommended. It was followed by A Blossom of Bright Light, No Witness But the Moon, A Place in the Wind, and Voice with No Echo, which leads us to the fragile edge. As I asked earlier, when is the next one coming? (laughs) I I honestly don't know. to go on to go a little bit um the world has changed a bit since i wrote the first ones Mm -hmm. and i think to some degree my voice writing these books may not be what 
the world wants now. Mm. So I'm not really sure. I mean, it's um, the books, the books have a, a very, very ardent readership, but they don't have a big readership. And unfortunately, we're in a world now where big readerships matter. So um, as you know, from the way Jimmy Vegas series ends, it could easily start again at any time. <laughs> exactly. But um, at this point, I don't know. I'm hoping that more and more people come to the series and that by the growth in that, that we can go somewhere with that. All right. Well, fair enough. And I hope I didn't put you on the spot with that. Um, no. But- and I want to be honest because and, and and that's really up to you which one to do. But I but I, I don't like to lie to people and sure. say, you know, the next one is coming. And, and because then I'm going to tell you what to title it. And, and I, it's, it's not there. I have lots of ideas. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I hope so. Well, let's go back to this because uh, it's the fragile edge. It was really delightful. And uh, I, I agree with what is actually on the homepage of your website. This is suspense that hits the heart, not just the pulse. And Lee said that as well, didn't he? He did. And I stole it from him and kept it as my tagline. So that's what I'm saying. You can steal from me and I'll finally feel even. (laughs) (laughs) So so for curiosity, tell me about this cover, this uh, multicolored kaleidoscopic snake. It's wonderful. And I would not say I have any I I don't bear any um, any credit for how great it is. But I will say that that I, I love my publisher, Kensington, because they do at least come to me and ask me and they came to me and they said, um, you know, we know that these books have a strong um, connection to the, you know, immigrant, particularly Central American, Mexican culture. Um, can you think of some ways or things that matter to you that you'd like to see on the cover or things that are really, um, co- you know, would really capture sort of a Central American theme? And I did say to them that the since the Guat- Guatemalans are, are in the book, I said Guatemalan weaving is spectacular. I'm wearing a Guatemalan woven bracelet now. Nice. Um, Guatemalan weaving is spectacular. And Guatemalan weaving is really just like you, no one would go to Guatemala and not come back with handwoven stuff. It's just spectacular. So I said, I felt that somehow something about the weaving should be on the cover. And that's really all I said. And the artist ran with it and came up with that. And as soon as I saw it, I loved it. I just absolutely loved it. And and they, they said, are, are you sure it's not too out there? I'm like, no, I think it's absolutely perfect. And you know what's so interesting about this? Yeah, Suzanne, you know what's so interesting about this is that sometimes, not not often, not always, I get tired of covers always having super similar themes. And you'll often see, you'll see a theme pop up and then you'll see it on every single not genre but in a in a genre you'll see it over and over and over again you're not gonna see this again and that's another reason i liked it i i it's funny my my um one of the bookstores that i work with um just said to me the other day this will this will attract people just by the cover the cover is great um and so and i'm hopeful and you know william kent kruger's line is on the front which he's he's a doll he's an amazing amazing writer um and uh you know his blurb for the book and and I, you know, I, I've been fortunate. It's and, and every book, by the way, I just want to stress to readers, every book is a standalone in the sense that while obviously it's best to read the whole series, you can pick up any book in any order and you can do just fine. You don't there's no yeah. loss of, of continuity. That's always good to know. And uh, to quote that for you, Chazen explores that difficult place where cultures collide with a heart filled with compassion. That's beautiful. And back to an earlier mention that you made, which was my very next point, centering around immigrants. What kind of, it made me curious, what kind of upbringing, uh, background did you have and how did that influence your writing? Yeah, 
Yeah, I, I, I'm not Hispanic, um, but my father was born and partly raised in Russia and, and then came to this country. And my mother was born and raised in England and came here as an adult. They met here. Both of them were orphaned pretty young, so they um, didn't have much family. Um, they, they married in New York, and I'm their only child. So I grew up with, um, I mean, I grew up with my father's extended family who would come over and speak Russian. This was in the 60s when that wasn't always so cool. And I would say, what are you all speaking? And they'd say, English. We're speaking English. They, they were terrified. They, I used to be growing up told that if someone asked me what Chazen is, to say it's French. Chazen, Chazen is not French, <laughs> but, um, but, you know, it was all this like fear surrounding it. And then we moved when I was about eight, we moved to a little town in New Jersey. We lived in Manhattan and then we moved into a little town in New Jersey and everyone was third generation American or farther back. Um, and, you know, it was all American barbecues and, and you know, street picnics and things like that. And my family was different. Um, you know, my father didn't believe in barbecues. My mother didn't like Halloween because she said that's begging door to door. I mean, I got to do it because she wasn't mean or anything, but but she just didn't understand it. She's like, I just don't like this thing where you go knock on people's doors and beg for candy. You know, um, the food I ate was different. Um, so I had this sense, a little sense of displacement. I was I wasn't of any religion because my father had grown up culturally Jewish but he wasn't really religious. My mother had left Catholicism completely behind um, after growing up in an, an orphanage. Um, so, so I was also in an era where everyone had a religion and they would say, what are you? And I was taught to say, I'm nothing. And that always bothered me. Nothing. What is nothing? Wow. What does nothing mean? I'm not nothing. Um, and so all of this gave me a sense of displacement. So what happened was when I was writing the Georgia series, we lived in a town um, right next to the town I live in now, three, three, like three minutes away by car. Um, and I would go downtown and there would be uh, Central American men who would be standing there waiting for work, uh, day work. And I realized I... I felt for them. Sometimes they were waiting there without even a coat on and they, it was winter and it was cold. And, and I, I realized I can't, my Spanish isn't good enough to speak to them. And I felt really bad. Sometimes I would give them like those chemical warmers, those hand warmer yes. things and stuff just, but, but I really didn't have anything, you know, sometimes they didn't even know what that was. Like, what is this lady giving them? Like, you know, you do this. <laughs> like, so, like this crazy lady is hitting this thing. Um, but anyway, so I, I just, found myself like, who are these people? What is their, what are their lives? So I started um, volunteering for a local outreach center and I began working, um, helping them with their computers and the English teaching classes and stuff. But I began thinking I'm a journalist. That's my background as a journalist. And I thought, you know, I'm a journalist. Why don't I find a way to tell their stories and we can do an in-house book and we can translate it into English and Spanish. And I, and if they only speak Spanish, I can work with a translator. It's not a problem. I've worked with translators before as a professional journalist. And, uh, and I thought then we could sell it in house and make money for the, uh, for the nonprofit. So initially they were really excited about the idea. And I did about a dozen interviews and then they finally read them and they said, Oh my God, we thought you were just going to have things like, I love America. America's great. I like coming here, but I was telling the real stories. These people were pouring their hearts out on me and they were, telling me really what it was like and what happened. And I was so moved. I told the real stories. And the very first man I interviewed said to me, they will never let you print this. And I, and I was only using first names. So I wasn't uh, identifying anybody. And, it was, and I was happy to use first name pseudonyms. 
But uh, it is exactly what happened. They said, oh, my God, we can't have this. We go to donors. We don't want this. We just don't want this. This is not good. So they dropped it. Simultaneously, I got a grant from Purchase University nearby to go and do it some more. <laughs> so right as they dropped it, they, I now got a grant to go do it more. So I went and I went to another organization. I started doing more of it. But the same thing happened all over again. So now I was faced with two dozen stories that were heartbreaking. And I felt I owe these people something. If I can't make their stories happen nonfiction-wise, how about if I fictionalize them? And then I thought, well, I can't just write them. But I thought, I am a mystery writer. I know how to write mysteries. What if I wrote a mystery that I call broccoli brownies? You know, it's a brownie. It's fun to eat. You enjoy it. It's tasty. But there's something more to it. There's some nutritional value. And I thought, why don't I tell these people stories in a way that people who pick up the book wouldn't say, you know, because if you write a bunch of stories about immigrants, people say, I'm not interested in that. I don't want to. It's political. I don't want that. But if you write a mystery, and I've had so many readers say this, I didn't have an opinion. I didn't have a thought. But I read this mystery, and I just have a whole new feeling about things. And I tried to write it agnostically in the sense that I didn't, I wasn't looking for a political viewpoint. I just wanted to tell people's stories. And I wanted to tell it in the context of a page turner that would be exciting, that you would say who did it, what's happening, what's going to happen. But I still wanted the reality of that. I didn't want someone to come away and go, that's totally false. I wanted it to be real. So that's the story. Wow. <laughs> well, it so shows up in this story. The layers, the immigrants, the families, even the little nuance. There was a scene where... Um, um, mother and child was going to go out and work in the field and the guy picking them up said you know go get a do you have a long sleeve shirt and boots and they were barefoot and i mean that was such a powerful scene yeah because what i did what i try to do very often when i'm doing these scenes not only is to speak to people who've really experienced it which i have but also to put myself in a situation um, and to say all right i'm thrown into a situation what wouldn't i know and I can think of how many times in my life I've shown up with the wrong clothes to things. And so these, this, these, this mother and daughter, they've never picked fruit before, not even in their own country have they picked fruit. And this, by the way, came, um, some of this was informed by one of the most touching stories I ever heard. I talked to a man who was an engineer in Colombia years ago. He's an engineer. And um, the, when the economy was tanking, this is kind of where Venezuela is now, when the economy was just tanking, People who were engineers were going and driving cabs. And he said, I am a college graduate. I am an engineer. I am not going to drive a cab in my country. So he decided to come to America without papers because he figured he would do better. But of course, now that he was without papers, he couldn't be an engineer. And he ended up working construction and working harder jobs and doing worse stuff. And yet he was an engineer. He knew things and he could do things, but it didn't matter. And that also worked for me because my grandmother was a doctor in Russia. Um, she was head of a hospital. And when um, when there was problems in Russia and she, you know, they were leaving Russia, everyone was getting out. My grandmother at first didn't want to go because she spoke four languages, but none of them were English. So here was a woman who was a medic, who was a doctor. She was educated. She spoke German and French and Yiddish and Russian. But she didn't want to go to America because she'd just be an immigrant who didn't speak any English, but Whoa. she was an educated woman. And that's a really interesting part of things that what you find here, you know, the assumption is that everybody who 
is working low jobs and are uneducated. They're not. A lot of them are very educated. Well, you've once again jumped ahead, taking a peek at my notes. And I know that you had graduated Northwestern University. And um, as you mentioned journalism, I was going to ask you, how has working in journalism crafted your career as an author? But you, you just told me so. Well, I'll tell you one quick anecdote. Um, okay. When I switched first to Georgia, when I first began uh, doing my books, um, my friends in journalism who you know knew me from my work said, oh, you're writing fiction now. And I said, well, now we get to call it fiction. <laughs> so I so I um, so I joke that in all of journalism, there's a little bit of fiction and in all of fiction, there's a little bit of journalism. Nice. And and speaking of journalism, your works appeared in, uh, let's see, New York Times, People, Family Circle, Reader's Digest, all books that most everyone on the planet has read. How many years of writing, because I'm coming at this question from a writing perspective, how many years of writing did it take before you appeared in the Times? Oh, um, well, I appeared in the Times doing like little essays and things. I never got an article from them. But part of that was, I have to say, I can't fault the times i never pitched an article to them um when i was working at the time i was working as an editor for reader's digest so i couldn't do anything that was of a journalistic nature anywhere else um so i wrote essays and floated them around other places and some of my essays did op-ed pages and things like that so so it was that kind of thing it was it was op-ed work but um the times can be strange i mean it's it's an incredible paper i mean absolutely incredible but they have their internal dial of what they're looking for. And you either hit that dial or you don't. You know, that's, I think that's really what it is. It's hard. I'm with Suzanne Chazen, and this is The Thriller Zone. We'll be back right after this. And now back to the show. I have had some really incredible stories as a journalist. I did a piece on, was one of the very first pieces on the man who discovered that ulcers were curable. And he went on to win the Nobel Prize in medicine. And I got thanked in his Nobel Prize speech. So I was very happy about that. But anyway, when I first met him, I discovered that when his centrifuge breaks for his, you know, what a centrifuge to like when you're trying to like mix chemicals and test tubes, you spin them around to get the test tubes at like different densities. Well, his centrifuge broke. So he used his family's ceiling fan. He tied the test tubes to the ceiling fan. And and. And I got to see that in action. He had he had specimens in their refrigerator that next to his wife's cooking. <laughs> so so that was that was definitely definitely fun. Um, I I mean I'm going to say the for the record I, I'm going to say for the record that's better than the person setting the house on fire. So nicely oh, done. Oh yeah, yeah. No, nobody set my house on fire because okay. first of all when I, when I do an article I'm usually in their house not mine. Okay. <laughs> and I'm very careful about letting anyone around matches around my house. But. Um, uh, but, but I have had amazing and wonderful people who I've gotten to interview. I mean, it's been, it's been a, uh, it's been a crazy time. I mean, I, uh, one of the things I loved was I was in an era when you had, when a story was needed to be done, they flew you wherever you needed to go. So I, you know, been on the Navajo reservations, being able to like, went to like, um, sweat lodge thing. I did, you know, I've, I've had opportunities um, are you hearing me okay? I'm hearing a strange. Yeah, you're but, you're coming and going, so I I think your microphone is moving. Am I, am I okay moved. right now? Yeah. Am I okay now? Yeah. Um. So I've just had great opportunities to to see different people in different worlds. I have been threatened. My life has been threatened by the boyfriend of an interviewee who basically um, took a knife to me. <laughs> uh, that was fun. 
Um, so yeah, I've had a, a variety of interesting experiences as a journalist. And I think one of the things it really helps as a fiction writer is when you've experienced things for real, you can write about them in, in the other stuff. Like for instance, um, before I ever did the Georgia series, the FDNY series, mm -hmm. I spent a 24 hours uh, with the FDNY's rescue unit. And um, that was a really amazing experience. And I got to write about it for a magazine article. But I also got to experience things I would never have experienced either vicariously through my husband or through my fiction. I mean, just the smell, riding on the truck, the incredible potholes in New York City and how you have to hold on because you will fall in the back of that truck. Um, the, the sleep deprivation, um, the the just just what it feels like to be at a fire and to have the alarms go off and have no clue what you're pulling up to. And you may be pulling up to something that's your last fire. And of course, you know, this all sounded melodramatic before 9-11. But of course, we know it's not melodramatic. I have a friend who lives up in Lake Tahoe and he is a fireman. Uh, former military, and he is, as you can, if you've been reading the news, knows that uh, uh, California has been suffering a yeah. tremendous amount of fires. And he and I said, you know, I said, what is the thing that scares you the most he, or, or, or that is the most challenging? He said, the fact is that he goes, I'm a, an adrenaline junkie. Um, I like that. I like being on the edge. I like serving people. He said, but the thing that causes pause is that you never know when you're heading out if that's yeah. the last fire and he said right. there's a little bit of adrenaline junkie result of that but it is daunting and um you know it it, it is part of what keeps him going and part of what keeps him head on the swivel but you know, um, I have family in Napa, California, so I really get what you're saying about fire because they had fires coming literally over their hillside la last year. Mm -hmm. And it's very scary. Um, one of the things I think, too, particularly maybe for forestry firefighting, but also for any firefighting is you never know. And this is true for police, too. The most routine job could be the job that's your last. You know, a lot of times people pull up and it looks like a, you know, a, you know, four alarm inferno. That's not the fire you may die in. You may die from falling through a hole that no one expected. Or guess what? This is a room that was an illegal occupancy and there's no there's no e means of egress. And now you're in this room and there's no way to get out of this room and, the, and it's blocked. And like for police officers, the domestic dispute, the domestic dispute is the kingpin of ways you're going to lose your life. I mean, and it's just the standard two people are screaming at each other. You walk in and guess what? They don't like you being there and you're gone. Yeah. You know, or traffic stop. Traffic stop's another key one. So again, you know, people think, oh, it's the bank robbery in progress. It's the four alarm fire. It's not. I see where you're going to be appearing, uh, launching uh, the Fragile Edge at Scattered Books in Chappaqua. It's Sunday, right? Yes. Okay. Thank you. You're going to be talking about the pub biz and how to launch a novel, which I've, I, I wish I could be there truly. Not to jump the line, but can you tell us one of your uh, most valued insights that you're going to share with that crowd? Um, yeah, because I've, ta I've taught writing for a long time, and I always tell people a few, few of my little anecdotes. One I tell people is that think of yourself, and I hate to say this, as a flavor at Baskin-Robbins. That even though Baskin-Robbins may have 31 flavors, you're only ever going to be cherry vanilla. OK, whatever you decide. So in other words, whatever you decide to be your first book 
And whatever you pour your heart and soul into, the odds are that you're never really going to get to be anything but that. So you got to make sure that the thing you write is the thing you're passionate about. Because a lot of times a writer will spend a lot of time writing a book they think is going to be a big bestseller. And the problem is books are never sold in a one book deal. They're usually sold in a two book deal, sometimes a three book deal, but usually a two book deal. Uh, Publishers are never that confident um, unless you're really well known already. Um, And they don't want the second book to be anything other than a repeat of the first book. If they liked your first book, they, so in other words, when I did the fire series, if that had managed to last, I would have been writing fire forever because that's what I would have been known for. I mean, John Grisham, does get to write a little other than lawyers, but you basically are a lawyer writer. You know, you you don't get to jump around. You're, most people don't get to be Stephen King and write everything on any subject at any time, anywhere. Um, you, you know, uh, it, it's so it's so one of the most important things I tell people is make sure the first thing that you're doing is something you're really and truly passionate about. That, that um, is such a great piece of advice. I mean, that is a spectacular piece of advice. And the reason it's so poignant to me at this moment is I'm getting ready to jump off two different series, all self-published, by the way, which you've enjoyed, you know, moderate success. But I'm launching this whole brand new thing, which I'm not going to talk about, but I, I'm so excited about it because I'm capitalizing on an old cliche that you've heard a million times, write what you know. And I've been writing what I didn't know, but I thought part of the beauty of being a writer is to just write about things that interest you. But the fact that that you're saying this challenges me to think more clearly as to the specificity with which I create this character. Because if this is indeed true, which I have to assume it is, that I'll be doing this for a while. And um, yes. which God, maybe I'll be interviewing you and maybe I'll be <laughs> I'd love to be interviewing you on that point. But but I agree, because the problem is, and that's why another factor people have a problem with is sometimes when they write that first book, they lock up all the all the answered questions. The last thing on earth you want to do is answer every question. So I left, you've got to leave relatives unknown and circumstances not clarified. You've got to, you've got to give the reader enough to really understand and know your character, but enough to still wonder about your character, because otherwise... You haven't given them anything to continue. So when I when I created Jimmy, initially when I was thinking about it, I was like, oh, well, his mother's dead. But it was later, it's like, no, his mother was murdered because now I have an entire new way to take the story. If his mother just died of cancer, what do I do with that? I mean, you can do things, but it's not going to be as exciting. His mother was murdered. You know, I had him divorced from his wife and starting the new relationship. But where does that go? Um, uh, I don't think I'm giving anything away, but there's a half sister who comes into the later books, you know, and she's introduced in the fifth book. Well, again, we have to know when we start early on the knowledge that Jimmy's, you know, parents split when he was very little. His father was really not in his life. He was kind of a Don Juan. He has half siblings he's not close to. Gives me lots of room to be able to take those people and work them into future stories. So you want to make sure that you make your character um, tactile enough so readers can really understand him or her now, but give them lots of things that, that still haven't been answered. Lots of questions, lots of opportunities for growth. I love this. This is going to become the highlight of the show. Um, I do want to 
ask you this. There are people who write what you know. Like, for instance, I'm thinking of a couple of different uh, military-based thriller writers that I know right now. They, they right. are former military, they, or, or, or they, have, they have just gotten out or they're still in, but they're, it's, right. it's military thriller through and through, and that's all they're ever going to write. Right. And they have all the knowledge of all the techniques and all the trade secrets and all the tactical weapons, etc., but um, if you, if you, let's say you, Suzanne, wanted to write, you, you got a hankering one day to do. I want to do a female f- sniper jumps out of an airplane. Blah blah blah. Right. Would you do that? Would you? Would you branch completely out yourself? And and I, and if you did, yeah. would you? Would you feel secure enough with the knowledge and the research that you would do in? Uh, compiling all that information to embellish the story? Well, first of all, I think there's a couple of things. I think that one can get bogged down in authenticity. I think that authenticity, like I always say that, that um, like, for instance, I don't write about Russian immigrants. I, I, I should write about Russian immigrants, right? I'm, I'm a child of Russian immigrants. Right. I know a lot about them, but I don't write about that because I'm too close to it. I'm sick of it. <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to write about it. Um, I think that having a little as, as a journalist, I think that one of the big advantages as a journalist was always that I got to be just removed enough from a situation to see it clearly. So I always thought being the wife of a firefighter was the perfect place because I could see things clearly enough because it wasn't enmeshed in them. And I think being the child of immigrants, but not necessarily being a part of that culture, but being very open to it and very interested in it. And really, I mean, you know, I read it, I listen to the music, I follow people. I'm really, I'm very connected in certain ways. I think that that gives me an an eye that maybe people right in the place might not see or hear as well. So I think it comes down to passion. First of all, I would say if a person wanted to write about a female sniper, I would like to think that they're reading everything they can all the all the books they can about true stories of female sniper of female snipers or snipers you don't have to be female true stories of snipers and women in the military right. i would want to think that that person has a strong and endearing passion for that topic independent of writing the books and that they have a generalized knowledge and that they've spoken to real people who are really in the field and then taken that and know that they're going to have to do it one book, and if it's successful, two books, three books, four books, five books, they have to keep doing it. Do they have the passion to sustain that? That's really the question. That's awesome. Okay, and that's good. And I think <clears throat> I'm thinking about people who have prolific careers right now. I'm thinking of James Patterson, who has mm-hmm. this prolific career with uh, the detective, and he's right. never been a detective, nope. uh, never been a cop. He was in advertising, nope. but something kept him going and his passion right. was, well, his passion is storytelling. He's just so dead gum good at it. Yeah. His passion is storytelling. He has a very tight way of, of, of do, I mean, he has a real way to do things. That's a James Patterson way. And yeah. I think that, that he could probably take any story about, you know, he could take a cowboy uh, and he could take a, a cop and he could take a fisherman and he could probably tell a really good story because he's not really, the way he writes, he doesn't need a lot of depth. He needs just the semblance of reality, and then he needs to tell it in his way. Yeah. So I think I think that's the thing, too. It depends on what kind of story you want to write. Um, uh, I mean, you're always going to have people, especially when you get into, by the way, like like one of the worst ones is people is anything to do with military weapons. Because once you get into something, if you make a mistake, <laughs> every single 
person who knows that gun will write you and tell you you yeah. don't know what you're talking about yeah they, the gun people really know their guns and they know when you don't know it oh, yeah um, and i don't yeah. um so but i do my research and, and then sometimes people are wrong like for instance when i wrote the georgia series i wrote a scene in the book where um a, a guy is in a basement of a vacant building and he there's water in the building and he gets like electrocuted I mean, he doesn't die but he gets a spark and things and this guy from Colorado somewhere wrote me, I think it was Colorado, and said, that would never happen. The electricity would have been cut. But the people in New York say that happens all the time because people funnel electricity and they steal electricity and they steal it and they put it in vacant buildings because they're living there, they're squatting there. So it happens all the time. So so was the guy in Colorado right? Well, he was right for him. Right. But it turns out, you know, it's not so much what's right, it's what's plausible. Gotcha. What is plausible? If it's plausible, go with it. If you were doing it again today, I mean, you've already been uh, traditionally published if if you couldn't get an agent straight away would you try to go around would you try to go to a publisher if i was if i was young uh and i hadn't been published before i would do it um uh because first of all i'd be younger and i'd be more technologically savvy than i am now that's one of the problems um i mean I don't think it's a bad idea. The problem with it is, is it doesn't count for anything. It doesn't like if you ever want to be published by a traditional publisher, um, unless your sales are phenomenal that way, it doesn't count for anything. And the odds of it being phenomenal are not great. Oh. You know, I mean, there there are people who self-publish and they do really well. But when they do really well, guess what happens? They get picked up by traditional publishing. Yeah. So so the thing is, I always think that the best thing to do is uh, – I mean, the, the business right now favors prolificness, which I am unfortunately not. I, I am not like a really fast writer. I really take my time and I really like to think through and my stories are complex, but it really favors fast writing. So it favors someone who can say, I've got an idea for a series. I've got sort of the big picture idea and I can knock out the books quickly. And then you could almost do either way. Uh, certainly traditional publishers, the best way. But if you can knock out a lot of books in uh, 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 yourself, you might end up getting a publisher interested because if they look and they go, oh my God, there's this back series I could publish and this person's still publishing, then it looks good. Everybody's afraid of that solo book orphaned on the shelf. Nobody wants to publish that book. Now, unless it's like the great American novel that the New York Times is Ballyhooed, but most of the time they don't like that because the second novel sucks, you know? <laughs> <So>. <laughs> That's a harsh reality, isn't it? Well, it's sort of, it's sort of. Well, the problem is, it's automatically built in to suck because they they give you a they give them a two book deal. I'm, I'm not a great American novel writer, so I'm only doing it from what you know what I've read tangentially. But I mean, they give them a great deal. Then they then they push the first book like crazy because they spend a lot of money for it. Now the first book does okay, but maybe not as well as the amount they pushed. So now you're already behind the eight ball. Now they've got pressure on you to bring out the second one. Now the second one, the first maybe took you five or six years to write, but now the second one you're writing in between you know visits with the Oprah, it's not the same book. And very, very rarely does the person rise. Uh, the the, the, the uh, pop fiction does better with that because, again, it's people who know how to turn out a good story quickly. As we start to wind things down today, I want to, first of all, say uh, good luck at the uh, scattered books. I, I really would love to be there to hear that. I, I always love to be in the back of the room when authors appear to talk about their books. There's a certain kind of electrical passion that happens when they're in front of people. I love that. Well, you know this. It's your baby. You've spent yeah. so much time with it. You just feel like it's your little child. And 
you know, and then I joke because it's kind of like a dog after a while because you, you, you quickly forget them, <laughs> you know, you nurse them, you wean them and then it's on to the next one. And isn't it Sometimes funny? People ask, ask me about a scene and I can't remember. Yeah. It's, it's funny how that love affair quit uh, in so quickly. So tell me as we wrap things up, if you weren't writing, what would you be doing? I'm curious. Uh, well, I mean, I still love journalism. I love articles. Um, I probably would try to go back on staff somewhere, though it's harder to do these days. I'd probably freelance. Um, I love ProPublica. I'd probably try to compete with the 22-year-olds in writing ProPublica, but I, I don't think I could anymore. But um, but I, I, I love a good muckraking story. Um, so that's really my passion. And, you know, I, I do like, you know, social issues. I, I work a lot with our local food pantry. You know, I care about issues like that. I mean, there's been a real uptick in people who need, um, you know, help with food in this time. So, you know, stuff like that. Um, but um, no, I'm, I'm happy to say that I did the career I really loved. I mean, I meet a lot of people who talk about why they did something and it's not really out of love. And I'm, I tell people, you know, if you can find a way, even if you, as I did for many years, did it on the side, um, just, you know, live your, live your passion somehow. You got to do it. I love that. If you, uh, when you're sitting down to write keyboard or pen. Oh, keyboard. I, you don't want to see my writing. It's, I can't even read my writing. (laughs) It's gotten worse. (laughs) Music or silence. Silence, but in between listen in between writing, I like to listen to music that is sets the right mood for it. So in the car or something, you know, when I'm writing one of these books, I'm listening to Louis Fonsi, I'm listening to Cheyenne, I'm listening to, you know, the top pop uh, songs of the last year and the Spanish, you know, pop stuff. Uh-huh. So morning or evening? Anytime I can. I mean, I my youngest just went off to college, but my life has always been. Yeah, my 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 uh, my life has always been get it where you can get it. I remember I was once in an elevator um, after leaving um, Putnam and this guy said, uh, when do you write? And I looked at him and said, this is not a question you would ask any mother. When do I write? Whenever I can. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's so funny. That's such a classic question. And 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 uh, I'm a creature of habit. I'm sure you have your own certain built in habits, but I'm also one of those guys that. And I believe this is, uh, hopefully it's a sign of a good writer, is that I'm writing all the time. I, I always carry some kind of a notebook or pen. And because those ideas that come through um, the ether, you, you want to grab them because you don't know if they're going to come around again. I would love to do that, but I'm, unfortunately, every time I got a good idea, it's in the shower. <laughs> <laughs> I swear to God, I never get a good idea except in the shower. You need some kind of a, a whiteboard and a waterproof yeah. pen. Soap. <laughs> All right, last question here. It's two-parter. If you're having dinner with two people, you've always dreamt of meeting. So that's the first part. Who would they be? Oh, these are like the college Zoom questions. That makes me terrified. Okay, yeah, yeah go ahead. Super easy. Dinner with two people you've always wanted to meet. Who are they? And you're going to take a copy of your favorite book to share as a gift. What would the book be? Oh, I, I know which book it would be. Um, I really like David Benioff's City of Thieves, which is not a thriller, I know, but um, it is probably my all-time favorite book. And it is, um, it's amazing. David Benioff, as you know, developed Game of Thrones, but he also is a, a, a writer. Um, he, uh, I mean, he didn't write Game of Thrones, you know, that, that, that's um, uh, George R.R. R. Martin, but he developed it for television. But he also, when he was a scriptwriter in, in, in um I'm going into a long story. That's always a danger with with writers. Um, That's all right. Anyway, when he was a when he was a scriptwriter, 
his his old uh, Jewish immigrant, Russian Jewish immigrant grandfather said, you write all these scripts, all this fake stuff. How can you never write anything real? So he said, you know, grandfather, I'm going to write the story of your life, but I'm going to fictionalize it. And his grand, all he knew about his grandfather was that he had lived in Leningrad during World War II. He had killed two men and he'd lost a finger. So he basically fictionalized this amazing character. And so City of Thieves is probably my all-time favorite book. As far as people, you know, as soon as I get off, I'll think of two people I really want to spend time with. Right now, I'm trying to think, who would I want to spend time with? I mean, from history or because... It can be from, living from, or dead, and it can be anyone, and this is not a high pressure... Well, there was, I don't remember his name, but I remember reading this, and this just floored me, was the guy who founded the Red Cross. He was not the Red Cross. The um, what's the He was, a guy, he was a, like a, a Swiss guy. I'm, I'm going to botch it, so forget it. It was just an amazing story, and I remember, I remember reading this. What happens to me is I read the obits in the Times all the time, and I go, that's the guy I want to meet. That's the guy I want to meet. And, of course, I don't remember their name because they're not famous. And those are usually the people I most want to meet. And Why so are you I'm reading famous. the obits? Yeah, because the greatest stories, do you know what, how they started journalists? They always started a journalist. When you started at a newspaper, you started writing the obits. And why? Because if you can tell the story of a person's life, you can tell a story. So the obits are the place to start. So some of the greatest writing is always the obits. Awesome. Um, I, I'm not saying local papers. They usually just you know paid announcements. But I'm saying there can be some really amazing ones. So so I'm going to get off and I'm going to think, but I don't have something like I want to meet Sigmund Freud because I don't think I want to meet Sigmund Freud. <laughs> I, I honestly think I, I honestly think maybe that comes from my journalist background. I think that um, ordinary people, um, what we call ordinary people, have done extraordinary things. And I think that when you say, who would you want to meet people, you should pick someone famous. But people are often famous because they like even if you take, say, a Nobel scientist, often they were part of a group of people who were all amazing. And we're we're just only knowing about that one person. And a lot of times in my life, I've met the most extraordinary. People. I met a woman the other day. This was kind of an interesting story. Um, my daughter um, was going horseback riding right before she left because she loves horseback riding. And this woman I saw her, she was in her 60s and she was riding really well. And I said, to her, you're a great rider. And she said, well, you know. I was um, I didn't ride for 25 years and then I got breast cancer and then um, I um, the doctor missed it. And so I ended up having a lawsuit and I collected some money and I was very bitter about the fact that the, the, that the breast cancer had been caught late. And I felt that I could do two things with this. I could take the money and just be bitter or I could spend the money on something that would bring me joy. So she bought her horse and she went back to horseback riding. And that to me, I would rather spend five minutes with that woman than a famous person. I love so, it. I'll leave you with that idea. <laughs> I love it. And you know what? It's so funny. Uh, I was telling this to someone on another show that um, my first career was radio. So I got to hang out with rock and country musicians and authors and movie stars. And, and that's all cool. I always go back. You know who I want to spend my time with these days? I want to spend my time with other writers because I just want to hear the stories in their heads and what makes them tick. And, uh, I don't know why, but that's, yeah. uh, you know. The, the other thing is is that people who are famous are rehearsed. It's not their fault. Right. They have to be rehearsed. Um, right. Part of it is that you've been interviewed so many times, you're also told what you can't say in, yeah. in 19 things. So they're so rehearsed, you never really get, um, I mean, as a member, I actually interviewed Jewel, the, the singer mm -hmm. Jewel, and I asked her all these questions that 
she said, no one's ever asked me these questions before because she's used to ask it. She said, I usually get asked questions like, if you were a fruit, what fruit would you be? What's your favorite color? You know, and I asked her a lot of stuff that elicited a lot of things that were kind of amazing, <laughs> you know, um, and uh, some of which we didn't end up using because they didn't end up wanting to use it, but it was just kind of amazing. And, and I feel like that's the problem. So that's one of the reasons why I can't think of a famous person or, you know, that I would really want. And then the people who aren't famous, I can't remember their names. Okay. And my last question is, if you were a fruit, what color would you be? No, never. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, last, last question, best piece of advice you could give an up and coming writer. And you kind of referenced it when you were talking about this book appearance, but is there one little morsel, one little, uh, uh, uh I would say, I would say, don't quit. I, I, when I used to teach, I used to say, um, writing is like acting. There are theater majors and there are actors. Theater majors are people who take a lot of acting courses, but they don't go to a lot of auditions. Actors are people who go to a hundred auditions and realize that 99 of them are going to turn them down. So if you want to be a real writer, you have to realize you're going to have to rewrite and read. There are no writers. They're only rewriters. You have to rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. You have to never give up. And you have to understand that the failure is built into it. You're going to have to fail a lot. And if you think that you're not, then then that's like what weeds out people who aren't passionate enough. Um, you know, as soon as you get someone who says, oh, but, you know, I, I went to three agents and they turned me down. How about 50 agents? How about, how about, you know, how many publishers did you talk to? How many years have you stayed at it? Um, so, it, I mean, that can sound depressing, but if you love it, it shouldn't sound depressing because, you know, people say, oh, I'll be, I'll be um, you know, somebody who's 40 will say, oh, I'll be 50 before I publish a novel. And how old will you be if you don't publish a novel in 10 years? You'll still be 50. You'll be 50 either way. That's great. And Jay Todd Scott was on my show last week, and he he, he left me with something really great. I said, hey, Jay, what uh, Todd, what, what if you're writing this particular story and it doesn't sell? He goes, you know, I don't care because I like doing it, and I'm just going to keep writing anyway. Right. Right. So, That's the thing. Yeah. And every every book makes you better. And every piece of writing makes you better. So the thing is that you, you know, look, look, at Stephen King has the classic story. You know, his first three books went into the garbage and he almost put Carrie into the garbage. His wife fished him out, fished it out. Yeah. So the thing is, every book makes you better. So if you really want to be a writer and you don't want to be a theater major, you want to be an actor, then you have to go to the auditions and you have to fail. And that's part of it. Suzanne, that's awesome. And this has been one of the most delightful times I've had in a while. I have to tell you that. Thank you. And you are wonderful. I knew you came from radio. I said, he's got the most incredible voice. And you could give Lee Child a run. You look like the quintessential author. You are going to do, you know, you do great, I'm sure. Well, you're from from your lips to God's ears, as they say. <laughs> no, but this has well, been delightful. with the new series. Thank you so yeah. much. And um, I, I can't think of a better send off than to say, folks, grab the fragile edge. I think you'll really, really love it. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Thanks again, Suzanne. Today was fun, and I think we all walked away learning something new. All right. Now, on next week's Thriller Zone, you'll meet the witty and talented Chris Tetsy, a gal that's been an English professor, a screenwriting instructor, a columnist at the Journal Inquirer, and editor of the literary journal American Fiction, as well as author of Hindsight. And I hope you'll join us. Until next time, I hope you'll make a point of following us on your favorite podcast channel. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is currently called David Temple Author, but soon to be The Thriller Zone. And do me a favor, would you? If you like watching this podcast on YouTube, be sure to subscribe. 
And while you're at it, it'd be swell if you gave us five stars there and on your favorite podcast channel. You take care, and I'll see you next time on The Thriller Zone. The Thriller Zone has been presented by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller.